Today I am here with Whitney Rancic, who is a writer, producer, and director, a friend of mine. Um, he is the director of a movie called Handgum with Treat Williams. He's directed everything from ER to Smallville. As a producer, he um, brought me on a project that he optioned, a book called The Intruders. We sold it to Universal Focus together. John Curran was the director attached. And um, I'm uh, currently actually involved with him on another project that we're uh, just set up uh, with another producer, uh, which we'll talk about during this interview. But So welcome, Whitney. Thanks for coming. Well, thanks for having me, Gary. Pleasure. Cool. Tell the audience who don't who aren't familiar with you or your work um, how you got into the business, like where you came from, like that group of people that you came up with in the shooting gallery. Well, um, for me, basically, I'm one of the one of these uh, guys that was making uh, Super Eight movies when I was a kid. Uh, always loved uh, going to see the movies, um, and then went to film school uh, in the. 80s, where I met a place called SUNY Purchase, which was filled with a, a lot of great uh, film professors and uh, fellow students that um, a group of us all stuck together after we got out of school um, and continued to make short films. Uh, people like uh, Bob Goss, um, Nick Gomez, Hal Hartley, uh, who was a, a couple of years ahead of us. Um, but we were all making films in New York City in the, uh, excuse me, uh, short films in New York in the late 80s uh, when our friend, uh, who I just mentioned, Hal Hartley, uh, right around the time of Sex, Lies, and Videotape, uh, actually made an independent film called uh, Unbelievable Truth, and uh, we all worked on it. You know, I was like a, a PA and incredible amount of people uh, that went on to be filmmakers, actual directors, some of the ones I just mentioned, um, worked on that film. And then how, uh, after kind of sitting around with it for about a half a year, he went up to the Toronto Film Festival and suddenly he, he sold that movie. So what that showed us, uh, this group of people uh, in New York City, was that, hey, there's actually, you know, potentially a way of making a living from this. Because we were all kids. We were all in our you know, mid-twenties, um, and uh, doing everything from, you know, being PAs to, you know, shooting industrials, whatever. Um, then uh, once Hal got up and running with his first feature, we were all like, well, Hal makes short films, we made short mm -hmm. films, Hal makes features, we're going to make features. And it was starting to be a really exciting time in, uh, in independent film uh, here in the States, uh, when you had something like Sex Lies, and then people in New York City, um, other you know contemporaries were starting to make these films that were being shown at film festivals. And after a couple of years of that, you know, independent became a real uh, catchphrase, especially at at Sundance. Um, so uh, so there I was, beginning of the '90s, and my friend uh, Bob Goss. Uh, invited a group of us together to um, work under one roof. Very indie. It was New York City. Uh, 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 a friend of his, excuse me, not a friend, but um, somebody that wanted to be in the business. I mean, it was like a, a group of, you know, guys putting on a show mm -hmm. out back with, with, the, with the, you know, a sheet. Mm -hmm. And, um, and uh, it actually started to work because the first film out of there, um, first feature, I, I made a, it was, the it was, those days were so crazy that, you know, I didn't think the place was going to last. Mm -hmm. So within two weeks of getting the place, I was making a short film 
Uh, nobody knew what was going on, but the place was big enough. So I was like, you know, this place might not be around next month. We made the short film. Uh, about a year later, uh, the first film there made was called uh, Laws of Gravity by Nick Gomez. And what was great about that film, uh, aside from you know, being a, a good film, is uh, that Nick, a very talented filmmaker, sort of was seeing what was going on, um, or at least looking at other filmmakers at the time, because he saw his... Uh, he had uh, edited a couple films for Hal. You know, we were all classmates. Uh, Nick was kind of ready to go, but everybody was looking for money. That, that, that's what the company was about. We were hoping to make movies, group of guys under one roof. One roof. So um, Nick looked at uh, Malanoche uh, as uh, Gus Van Sant's film as a potential you know, he saw something in that, that basically what Gus did with that, you know, at least the way Nick put it, was, hey, could we could probably make a film with a Bolek's, Bolex camera and some clamp lamps. Let's do that. So um, the guy that was involved in the business side of it at the company was able to raise, I believe, about 30K, and they were off and running. Uh, shot on 16 millimeter. Um, it was, uh, you know, a film... Not only you know a very good film, but a film of its time. Yeah, Laws of Gravity. If you haven't done, no, you should definitely check it out. Um, Edie Falco's in it. Um, I think John, is John Leguizamo in it. I'm forgetting. No, Peter Green. Yeah. Um, it's actually a really good indie movie, and it actually is a lot handheld. I believe, right? I think the whole film is handheld. Yeah, I mean, it's really, and it gave Nick a directing career. Um, you know, he went deserved. Doing, yeah, deserved. very well deserved, definitely. Well, it also, um, you know, uh, none of us. I mean, we knew that Edie was a fantastic actress. Um, you know, that in its own way was uh, gave her a chance to uh, really take a shine. Take, yeah, it was a first um, really started to open up the door for a lot of people um, because that film went on to playing at the New York um, Independent, I forgot what it was called, uh, uh, Director Series, excuse me, um, which was a big deal. Yeah. And from that, they got a, a sale. Um, did did quite well with that. I mean, certainly uh, paid off um, uh, the investor, right. and there was some more and kept us afloat for some time. And as you said, uh, got Nick out to Los Angeles. Um, and then they also they were produced um, Sling Blade, which was a huge hit for the shooting gallery. Um, it, and- exactly. I mean, um, it, it you know just to finish that, what, what what was interesting about that time and the company I was initially involved with was. When they sold Laws of Gravity, it was right around the time of, um, uh, you know, the micro-budgeted right. independent films. Mm-hmm. Then uh, I stuck around there uh, for a couple of years, made my first feature, uh, and uh, had a wonderful uh, cast and crew. Uh, very exciting. That got a great review in a Variety, got my career going, uh, headed to Los Angeles, and somewhere in the mix we met... Yeah, I think we both at the time, you were represented by Mary Marr, I believe, and um, I had sold a play of mine, Dates and Nuts, which is a romantic comedy about an infomaniac, to Ed Pressman, and you were coming out to LA to do ER, I believe, you were hired to do ER, Whitney also directed Homicide, but he was directing ER, and I came out to LA, 
and he was dating um, a friend of mine, a girl from New York, and we all were out in L.A. at the same time, and you were generous enough uh, to invite me to the set of ER, and I was like, hell yeah, I'm there! <laughs> and I went, and I was super impressed, and I thought, oh my God, this is amazing. And you got into TV, and you did really quite well uh, in TV uh, for quite a while. And Whitney, as I've told many friends, I was just telling my friend Joe Price here uh, before you got here, is I think you're one of the, the most talented directors that I know. Um, well, thank you. And when I get my own show, I will definitely hire you to direct an episode. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm not going to say no yeah. to that. There's nobody that I know actually in my life that loves movies more than you do or actually has more uh, sort of academic and, and just love for film. Um, and so whenever you, you go see a movie, I feel like you see it through a different pair of eyes than I do. But knowing you as a friend and you educating me sort of about film, I have uh, I look at movies differently because of knowing you really. Um, and I, I really appreciate that because uh, I didn't look at them that way. Well, that's, that's very uh, kind of you to say. Um, that love of film, which you know, definitely came out of my childhood, was uh, reinforced and expanded upon uh, at SUNY Purchase with this wonderful professor by the name of uh, Tom Gunning, who uh, taught us, you know, how to look at films, mm. uh, everything from, it could have been a class on Hitchcock, you know, very difficult to sit over a semester and watch 12 <laughs> movies <laughs> and uh, write a paper about it, mm. uh, you know, uh, post-World War II directors, etc. So taking that into uh, actually forging a career uh, was a good foundation. Um, the independent scene in the 90s was was great foundation. I came out here uh, when I, uh, you know, I mean, it was interesting to go. At that time, the business seemed a little bit different. I mean, I'm sure it, it still was. happens. It was, definitely, for sure. But at that time, where I got lucky uh, in terms of television directing was that a uh, a, a great uh, writer showrunner by the name of Tom Fontana, the best, uh, exactly. Uh, who works uh, has a company with Barry Levinson. Yeah. What they were doing at that time with their amazing uh, show Homicide was they were kind of I'm not going to say cherry picking, but they were know, they were yeah. picking the best independent directors and giving them a shot for TV, and they gave a lot of first time TV directors their break, like yourself, exactly, and and uh, Nick as well, and a whole host of other people, and. Uh, it was it was really interesting to, because you know the dream of making films, um, which is is is, is uh, certainly my passion, or, or let's put it as uh, telling stories. Um, while it seems, um, you know, while it seemed impossible, especially in those days. There was a nice momentum, mm -hmm. and that momentum was like, oh, we're going to make short films, and we got friends together, basically with a ball X or, or whatever, and we made short films. Then it was, hey, let's make um, features. We made features. And falling into television then, it was an a, a, a easy transition. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the case these days. Yeah. But, it's actually hard to get a TV job, just to anyone who's listening out there today, um, you know, um, being myself in a position where we've hired directors on TV, it's I have a lot of compassion for all the filmmakers out there, all the people who are moving into the, the directing world, because it's harder today. I, I know there's more opportunity, it seems, but I think it's actually harder today 
to get a job in TV than it was then. Um, because I think back in the day that we were looking, or they were looking for people who were moving in the indie world and putting them into TV. And today it feels like everybody who has their show has a roster of people they've already used and they're just gonna keep them on loop. I actually am different, is that I actually wanna give all new people opportunities to direct. Well, I, I, you know, um, I'm not sure how much he's, he's continued with that. It, you know, Tom, um, uh, Barry were wonderful. Gail Mutrix were wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful along those lines because they, they, you know, you'd, I'd have to ask them what they were looking for. Mm-hmm. But we were young. Um, mm-hmm. But that show in particular, though, had a kind of a energy to it. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact that they used, uh, they actually used Jean de Gasson, uh, Jean de Sagonzac. Yep. I think that's how you pronounce Who's it. Who's the DP also of uh, Walls uh, of Gravity and also of The Sopranos. And now he's a director, an in-demand director on TV. Yeah, exactly. And he, um, but he, what I, I'm not sure if I, I think they saw laws. And which was all handheld. Yep. So then they did Homicide, which was all yep. handheld with jump cuts. Very exciting. Yeah. So they got all this these uh, uh, new talent on it, and it was an incredibly exciting uh, opportunity and time. And Tom was very uh, giving. Mm-hmm. Um, and I continue to you know it's what was what's great about Tom um, and other filmmakers, storytellers like your, yourself. What 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 I personally like. Um, in this business goes back exactly to what I was doing when I was a, a kid making Super 8 movies mm-hmm. or right after film school making mm-hmm. uh, shorts or even getting into the early days mm-hmm. of indies. And that's working with a, a group of people that are all working towards one thing, having a good time, respect each other, and not you know, o- overly complicate things. I agree. I feel like, you know, in the business, it's interesting because we're all dying to get into the business. We're all dying for our first opportunity to write a script or get a directing gig or whatever it may be or acting, whatever your field may be. And then you get in and I've seen this and I'm not this way and I'm so grateful and I don't know how I've maintained it, but you become jaded and you're like, I'm just making the donuts and it's just blah, blah, blah. And I never respond to that. You know, prior to you today, I was sitting with a young woman named Diara Kilpatrick, who's a writer and actress herself. And the reason I love being around her so much is that she sees the glass half full and she's, uh, she's excited about new ideas. And I think that people often, I have seen at least in the business, they, be, they fall into a position of cushiness or they've made some money or something like that. And then they get lazy. And then they get, they, 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 they know everything. I'm, I, I am still learning today. I have a conversation with one person. I learned something. I, I don't want to be around those people, actually. I actively look to move away from them because I want to be around people who are excited about the possibility, who are full of curiousness, and um, who truly want to tell stories. Like you said, like I personally feel when I go to set and I'm working with the crew, I'm excited. I feel like I'm making an independent film. Uh, we're, we're like, what are you going to do? And oh, are you going to do that? And, and I feel like if I, it's contagious. If I feel that way, the cameraman's going to feel that way. And if the camera feels that man, the focus puller's going to feel that way. And it's just, it's, it's exciting, you know? And I know, and I'm very grateful this, is when I'm on set with people, they have said to me like, oh, we love when you're on set. Because it's like, it feels, I still like that. Yeah. Like, I think if you get in a rut and you become jaded and you just want to make money and listen, money's great and we all need to pay our bills. And I do too, trust me. But there's, I want to be I, in my life, not even in only in my work, but in my life, I want to be around people who are excited about what they're doing because it keeps you healthy. It keeps your mind healthy. It keeps your body healthy, which brings me to currently you've, you've actually made a transition from what you started out doing 
to what you're currently doing, which you're also still directing, obviously. But I love that you're more actively these days producing. Right. Well, I, I wanted to um, uh, to respond to what you were saying about that energy not getting um, sedate. Yeah. Um, look, it's it's any director uh, will tell you it's wonderful to do a you know maybe a show after a show after a show. I mean, it, it's great to keep uh, uh, busy and you know I, I've done I did about you know maybe. 40 shows and, you know, uh, hours. And um, to me, it's always an honor to be invited onto a show. Um, it's, it's you know, it, to, to, to actually making a living from it, you know, when I started doing that, I, I couldn't believe it because there I was doing exactly what I wanted to do, an opportunity to shoot film or video, work with actors, set shots, all that. Um, television directing is much more complicated than I ever uh, could have foreseen. Um, I don't know, you know, when when I don't know what they teach in film schools <clears> these <throat> days. Nobody taught me about a whole part of the business, which has to do with uh, doing a certain kind of dance uh, to actually survive in, in the business. And it's, and I'm not saying there's anything ne- uh, negative about it, but there's just a whole slew of of uh, of uh, helpful rules um, because at the end of the day you want to be invited back to the shows. Now even though I was doing all those shows um, I always felt I'm looking for the next story. Mm -hmm. I'm always you know I'm always writing and one thing I noticed as my actual screenplays started to stack uh, started to um, rise that you know what I could write every day, every single day, but I'm not seeing that movie on, on the screen. So um, one thing I heard from uh, a, a producer uh, was that, you know, in, in Los Angeles, you know, how just important, you know, content is. Content is king. And that um, somewhere in my kind of figuring things out, as I was directing television, um, and writing scripts, but the scripts weren't selling, I started to think, you know what, why don't I get uh, put together some pro- uh, projects, find IPs. So this is going back right and in the And IP is intellectual properties, yeah. So um, what I realize, though, in terms of IP is I'm not, uh, I wasn't then or I'm not now the guy that's going to get, you know, the new book, the new galleys. Right. Uh, from these, uh, you know, from the from the, the large publishing public, exactly. So I started to uh, my angle was, um, and this is something I've continued to this day. To me, there's stories all over the place, mm-hmm. and God bless anybody that can get that story made. You know, through through all the mm-hmm. all the steps. Um, but what uh, I realize that if you find a story on the front of a newspaper. And it's actually read by people that there's a certain value to it, just in terms of it's kind of a Hollywood thing and other businesses. But as soon as you have some success in business, people look at you differently. Correct. So to that end, if you have, uh, let's say, uh, something from the newspaper and other people read that, you have a leg up because suddenly it's like it's not, not only you with the story, but that story has value because it's on the front page of the paper. 
Uh, actually, I found one of those. Uh, I called up the reporter. And at that time, I, I had, you know, maybe three or four television credits under my belt. Um, but I was passionate. Um, and uh, while that one didn't happen for that uh, newspaper article, though I flew up to this where the story took place. I was just a little, uh, I didn't quite, you know, it picked up actually. It, it, the, the writer got an agent mm. and I, I wasn't quite set up to do that. So I started to, uh, as the guy that I'm not getting galleys, uh, you know, books that haven't actually been published yet, I started looking to secondhand bookstores. And uh, the first book I found, I, it seemed like, hey, this is fantastic. It was like a 500 page book on World War II, and I'm mm. like, you know, I'm going to, let me read this, because mm. I think this might make a great story. So I read this whole bloody book, and uh, it was great, but then I went online, and I had heard, you know, what I found online was that Tom Cruise's company ah. was doing something along those lines, nice. yeah. and what I realized at that moment was, okay, wait a second, two things. One, I'm in the right ballpark, because if Tom Cruise's company is interested in a you know, a 70-year-old mm -hmm. topic, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. And the mm -hmm. second thing I realize is don't read the 500-page book mm -hmm. if the story might already be made. Mm -hmm. Make mm -hmm. sure that the story's not being done. Right. And if you can't, at least for me, if you can't sell the book that you get from the cover and what's written on the back, um, that's not a property that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. it, 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 to me... Uh, a lot of stuff I've done over the years going back to, you know, it's about branding. You know, yeah. you know what is a story? Now, pitching, uh, pitching here in Hollywood, uh, there's, uh, and, and Gary's the master of it. I do, I do know there are a couple different, you know, he might say half a dozen different kind of pitches, but one that I've always think is, is probably sort of the most important is the elevator pitch. And that's being able to tell your uh, story from the time you get on the first floor to whenever you get onto whatever floor you get off. It's basically uh, you know a couple sentences or so. So I found a kind of a that kind of book. Um, property was called The Intruders, and uh, I started tracking down the uh, the author. Uh, she was alive. I went up to visit her in San Francisco. Um, I had never done this before, but I optioned the material uh, for a dollar. You know, a lot of people think you have to spend a tremendous amount of money for options. Now, if you're getting something off of, you know, out of uh, New York publishing, sure, if it's a hot topic. But if you're finding an older property, um, you shouldn't put up a lot of money initially. You want to tell the author or whoever owns it that you're the guy that should get money. Anyhow, so I'm putting together that book. I called my good friend Gary Lennon, who I'm sitting across from. And he said, uh, uh, I don't, I'm not sure if I gave you the elevator pitch. Yeah, no, I remember you called me and I was stoked. I was like, I'm in. I read the book. I was like, I love this. I can sell it. I also, Mary, as you know me, I know when I can sell something. I was like, I got this. And we went out or we, we went out and pitched it to a number of people and we sold it. We set it up at Universal and, and we got the director, John Curran, attached and and then the executive that bought the project at the net, at the studio left, and we got we got assigned another executive. And unfortunately, that movie wasn't made. But the thing that Whitney said that I think is really interesting to people listening out there, which I think is inspiring. And if you haven't seen like the kid stays in the picture, which is the Bob Evans documentary about Bob Evans, who did The Godfather and Rosemary's Baby, you should definitely watch that documentary if you're a young producer out there and you want to make shit happen. 
Um, and Whitney um, is a testament to that, to that kind of, you know, drive. And um, he basically, uh, you know, got the book. And the thing I love about it is that you don't need to spend a lot of money. Like if you find a story that you love, it could be an article in a magazine, it could be a book, whatever it is. Get the rights to it, lock the rights down, and then it's your job as a producer to go find the correct person to help tell that story like Whitney did with me and then finding John Curran for that project. And Whitney's done that with a number of other projects as well. Uh, and what again, what I really like about you and that I admire about you is that you are um, in love with storytelling and you're in love with movies. Like literally, I feel like that's your that's your uh, uh, real passion. And... Um, you are always trying to tell the story, and I'll just share, and I don't know if we can be specific about the thing that we're currently working on together, but um, Whitney found another piece of IP that he locked down and, um, and uh, gave, brought to me, and I immediately, and also I want to share with the audience about like what producing is, because I think producing feels like it's such a mysterious thing. What do they do exactly? Producing and executive producing are, are very, what's the word I'm looking for? They're almost... Uh, ephemeral uh, uh, things uh, because, for example, you can literally be an executive producer on a project if you lock down the material and the IP and you, and you and then you pass it on to everyone and they go make the thing, but you're the executive producer. You and you deserve that credit. You were the one with the the foresight to lock that material down, get it to the right writer, and then give it to the right director, to the right studio exec, and you get that thing made. Um, and that is, I don't think a lot of people realize that they can produce, you know what I mean? Like you can, it's about following your passion. You know, you know, you find the story that you have to tell, you then give it to the right person. You did that with me. I think the recent thing that you sent me was, um, I think what I was helpful and I'll be completely honest, I have uh, none of the, uh, the story credit on this project that Whitney and I are doing together. Um, he did all the work, all the legwork, I mean, years of legwork on it. And then he handed me a gift and said, what do you think about this? And I thought, I know who would love this gift. And so what my executive producer credit on this project comes from my relationships. It, all I did was I knew who to call. I was like, oh, you know who's going to love this? Bing. And I called this person who has an incredible track record. Uh, in the documentary world, you know, loads of famous documentaries, and we're partnering with him to make this other project happen. And, and so I, again, in this situation, I was invited to a party that was already in progress. I'm the guest here. I know how to behave like a guest, and I'm making this project happen. And all I can say is that I'm grateful to have been a part of it because I want to help you tell that story, you know? Well, it's um, a fingers crossed, really, really excited um, where we're at. You know, you're, one thing in our conversation that I, I kind of we uh, talk about or keep on going back to is um, either getting hired, um, trying to uh, tell stories in one way or another. And what I feel um, and, and think when, when you and I talk and as we're talking about this stuff now is, you know, goes back to this finding the right, the right people to work with. Um, and if you have other uh, storytellers that uh, are passionate, energetic, clear, and uh, have uh, enough focus, you can really do, do so much. You can. I think one of the messages that you can get from this podcast today is literally that don't sweat the small stuff. Do not sweat the small stuff. 
and um, surround yourself with passionate people, like-minded people, uh, and, and get rid of any of the, the fat in your life, the toxicity, the negativity. You need to be with the winners. You need to stick with the winners. And that isn't an elitist thing to say. It just means to be with people who you really um, um, believe in and that um, want to do the same thing that you do. You know, I, I believe in this thing called big magic. And, um, and it's just a being about, it's really all it is, is about being completely open and available in your life. And I believe that you stumble into situations that wind up rising you up. That has been my life experience. My first job in New York, I wrote a play called Rated X that was about three kids on the street in this sort of relationship and uh, prostitution and all this stuff. And I had this script in my hand. It was a play, Rated X. And I was going up an elevator at the printing house in New York, which actually the shooting gallery winded up being in that building for a while. And this producer was standing next to me and said, wow, that's a provocative title. And I said, yeah. And I said, I'm doing a play. You should come see it. And then boom, it was uh, Frank Dolger, who uh, executive produces uh, Game of Thrones, and got me my first writing job which was writing a film for HBO called The Katie Costner Story, which was in a series called The Life Lessons, I believe. And um, so I was, what I'm trying to say is I was available, I'm alive, I'm looking for opportunities in my life. It's, it's almost like being an electric piece of wire that you're just you know, hooked up and then you, you, you get zapped and then you're in. Well, the, the, the key thing um, that we touched upon is um, don't rest on your laurels. Uh, don't get uh, be sedate. Um, you know, uh, Gary, uh, uh, as an example, uh, his uh, work ethic is is an output is amazing because uh, aside from uh, you know as as a friend contemporary, I saw him go from doing play after play to eventually getting into television, different shows, um, and to to where he's at now. At the same time, over the last, just, I guess, ten, just put it at 10 years, you know, roughly almost every year he did a play as well. Um, so that, that's a passion project of his on the side, and that says a lot, and also says something to a little bit of, of, of what, how I've gone about my career, because it's not so much that, you know, that it's, it's, it's I've always kind of produced, mm-hmm. and... And there's a reason for that because as going back to these television shows, again, utter wonderful uh, to be invited. You work then have the opportunity to work with uh, you know some great showrunners like Tom, and even shows that are maybe a little bit different. How should I put that? Are are just are maybe finding its footing? Maybe it's it's a show that is um, you're not sure exactly how it's all going to unfold. What an honor to be there to help that showrunner to try to get it up on its feet, mm. you know, to show up every day. For me, it's it, the, it's a, it's all about positive energy. The first on the set, you know, um, first there after lunch, um, and and drive that um, that event, you know, that that show. But that energy should shouldn't just be for the nine to five. That those, that those of us are that are lucky to do to have. Or that might be, you know, seven to seven, the twelve-hour day on television, to be able to have other projects like the way you do plays, I think is an important thing. Um, you know, I'm working with a, a director right now, very talented, uh, very successful, 
Um, you know, but I know in the back of his mind or who he is, you know, even though he goes from show to show to show, he's more than just that, mm -hmm. you know, and look, you know, if, if you're the top tier directors or mid, mid tier and you're working all the time, you know, that's, that's enough plus a life to keep anybody busy mm -hmm. and, you know, it's exhausting mm -hmm. raising family along with that, whatever. But there's, I've always had this itch and that itch is going back to, it's not so much film, maybe it is, but it's storytelling. Yeah. And, and so I'm always looking for that story. So what I'm saying in this podcast, kind of just bouncing around off this is, I don't care if you're a writer, but if you're starting out or a director, producer, whatever you are, the opportunities, nothing was ever easy when we started. If anything, it's just as hard. But the opportunities, the, the tools are there. I, I've met a number of writers that are like, oh, I just want to I just want to get my, you know, get into the business. And what I'm thinking is, well, you should you should have some of your material shot even if it's mm -hmm. a pod uh, not a podcast but something for youtube whatever mm -hmm. an individual needs to do to keep the creative yeah. juices flowing otherwise people get stagnant and they don't achieve what they want and that's yeah i mean the great thing about doing what we do is that you don't need any permission to create you've got to give yourself that permission and I, I'm inspired by barristers that work at Starbucks who are making films and wind up at Sundance. You know, to me, they're inspiring. And I had $7 when I was 30 years old. Uh, and, um, and I didn't really get in this business, as you know, really, because you know me a long time. I didn't get in this business to, like, make money. That was never um, part of my agenda. I love having money. But um, uh, I got in the business because I, I wanted to have contact with other human beings. I wanted to tell my story. I wanted to be seen. I wanted to be heard. I, I like the tribal community of what we do, um, and I get off on it. It excites me. And so I feel like anybody out there who's listening who feels like they want to be in the business, in the entertainment world as a storyteller, is like, don't wait for someone to give you permission. You don't need a degree. You don't need a salary. Um, what you need is the passion and the drive. And then even if you don't know how to do what you do well yet, you know what I mean, um, do it. Learn as you're doing. I certainly didn't know how to write when I started writing. I certainly didn't know how to direct when I started directing. I certainly didn't know how to produce when I started producing. You learn. You know, I mean, um, someone, I think who it was was so great. I forget who it was. But someone said something like, you know, um, if someone asks you if you know how to do something when, you, when you're up for a job interview and they ask you, do you know how to do your work, Adobe 7075? Yes, I do. <laughs> and then you go home and you figure that shit out. You're like, what the fuck is Adobe 775? And I, I always tell the story about me when I was young, you know, this is even going back, but it translates into the business that we're in, is I was getting a job at the Odeon as a waiter and I was interviewed by Keith McNally, who owns like some of the best restaurants in New York, Baldassar and, you know, Cafe Luxembourg, where I worked for five years. Um, I was being interviewed and I had lied in my resume about where I um, worked and I, I didn't know Keith at the time and I gave him my resume and he said, so I see here you worked at Cafe de la Pie uh, on Central Park West. And I said, yes. And he said, and it says here you worked here in, in January and February of last year. Is that right? And I said, yes. And he said, Cafe de la Pie isn't open during the winter months. And I said, oh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> I made a mistake. And then he said, and you have fine dining experience, correct? You, and I said, yes. And he said, do you serve life, left to right or right to left? And I was like, oh, right to left. He said, no, it's left to right. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm really nervous in this. You know, I just really want the job. And then he said, you have bartending experience. I said, yes, I do. He said, how do you make a Rob Roy? And I said, a vodka, a little vermouth, and a cherry. He said, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
And um, I said, I should just get going. And he said, you could start training on Monday. There you go. And he gave me a fucking job. And the great thing about that is that years later, I worked for him, as I said. Actually, I worked for him for seven years because I worked at Luxembourg for five and the Odeon for about two. But um, I asked him years later, uh, why did you hire me? And he said simply, I liked you, so I thought my customers would as well. And I spent seven years of my life with the dude. So on that note, I'm going to say I thank uh, Whitney Rancic for being here today with us. I really appreciate it. Um, I really hope that our new project finds its way and onto the screen. And I think it's a big story. I'm very excited about it. And I want to say uh, thank you for listening. So uh, we'll uh, talk to you next week. Uh, thanks, Gary, for having me. All right.